Welcome to Pursuing Justice. Today, we have a very fascinating guest. And before we introduce him, um, I wanted to kind of set the stage and say uh, a few things about children in our justice system. Each year, thousands of children are unfairly prosecuted, harshly sentenced, and locked up in the adult criminal justice system. Why is that something we should all be concerned about? To tell us more, we've invited James Dold to illuminate these critical issues. James is the founder of Human Rights for Kids, based in Washington, D.C. His nonprofit began in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, James. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Harriet. I'm excited to be here. Great. We spoke to Sarah Cruzan just recently about her advocacy work, and she talked briefly about the law named after her called Sarah's Law. And she said, I would really like James to talk more in depth about it. Um, she turned it over to you. So I know you're going to go into greater depth, but first, I would like to learn more, and I know my listeners would too, about your new-ish organization, it's only a few years old, uh, Human Rights for Kids. Why did you create this organization and what is your mission? Well, thank you so much, Harriet. And again, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And yeah, the you know, Human Rights for Kids, we started in 2017 and I was honored to be able to uh, start the organization alongside a number mm -hmm. of uh, good friends and colleagues who I'd worked with over the years, uh, who also happen to be uh, state legislators from across the country. Um, one of the great things about our board of directors is that it's largely made up of Republican and Democratic state legislators from states as diverse as Arkansas and West Virginia uh, to you know Nevada and Hawaii. And we pride ourselves on the fact that uh, our board and the folks who work with us come from very different backgrounds, ideologically all very distinct, um, have different worldviews, but we're all united in this common belief and vision that uh, we have fundamentally failed our children, our most vulnerable children in this country, and that we need uh, collective action on a bipartisan basis to make sure that every child's human rights are protected and that they have an equal chance in the race of life, to quote uh, Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, our board initially started off with five Republicans and, and three Democrats. We had eight state legislators. And again, you know, the, the common thread that united our work was uh, this understanding that the vast majority of kids who end up in our criminal justice system are some of the most abused and neglected and forgotten children in our society. Um, there was sort of this intersection that informed the very beginning stages of our work um, between kids who ended up in child welfare, uh, kids who ended up uh, being left behind in the educational system, and then those kids who ultimately ended up in our justice system. And uh, Sarah's case is, is a, you know, a unique example of that, although um, not so unique to the population that we're speaking about. And so our, our you know, if you examine the, the, um, the records of our board members, you would see that the common thread between all of them is that most of them uh, were the ones who were responsible for leading the comprehensive effort in their home states to enact comprehensive a, a, a comprehensive legal framework to combat human trafficking, uh, labor and sex trafficking, particularly of children. 
And that they were also the same state legislators who uh, led the effort to end life without parole sentences for children um, who were convicted of serious crimes in their home states. And so uh, for me, um, you know, going back to when I first came out of law school um, and learned of Sarah's case, uh, the common thread that that you know I began to see early on in my career was you know the the unique exposure that each population of kids that I was advocating on behalf of uh, their exposure to adverse childhood experiences and early childhood trauma um, and those early experiences of trauma of course what we know now from the the data and the research is what makes children more vulnerable to being victimized later in life and later in their teenage years it's also the thing that makes them more susceptible or more likely to end up engaging in delinquent or criminal behavior later on in life because those same problems when they're not addressed and they don't get the treatment and services that they need they end up becoming you know issues that drive kids into the wrong places looking for love care and affection um, if you're not getting those things at home you're going to get them somewhere you're going to get them in the hands of a nefarious adult who is going to exploit, abuse, or traffic you, or you're going to get them in, a, in the gang life, right, with other kids who are going to give you what you think you're missing or you, that you don't have at home. And so there was this through line that we saw very early on in our work that needed to be addressed, and, and you know, the, it, it sort of was at the intersection of kids who have experienced trauma. And then the last thing I'll say just about, you know, the, the beginning of our founding was that it was also informed by my own personal experiences growing up. Um, both as a survivor of child sex abuse and child labor trafficking, but also what I witnessed uh, my siblings uh, going through in, in the inner city where we grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was one of only eight children who were raised by my parents that, that finished high school. Most of my siblings dropped out of school by the 11th grade, um, cycled in and out of the justice system, became addicted to drugs. I grew up um, in, when I say uh, the children raised in my family, I also mean my nephew and my niece, because my oldest sister, who's 15 years older than me, had them, uh, my niece, when she was 17 years old. So I was still a baby when my, when my niece was being born. We're closer in age, almost like a brother and sister relationship than um, uncle and uh, niece. And so I grew up with my niece and my nephew, and then also my two cousins, whose father uh, at that time, when we were 11 years old, was incarcerated, and their mother had been killed by a hit and run driver. And so, you know, we had all of these kids in my house who, you know, were dealing with just extreme amounts of trauma. Um, and then, of course, that led me eventually to end up running away from home, ended up being a, in an abusive situation for a number of years while I was living away from my family uh, before I was eventually able to escape the manipulative hold my abuser had over me and the trauma bond that I had formed with her to eventually move back in with my parents and, like I said, finish high school in large part due to the, to the you know, incredible mentorship that I found through coaches and teachers who cared for me um, in the schools that I attended in high school. And so, um, but I, that always stuck with me, you know, being the only child who, you know, was able to escape that situation and then watching how that trauma that we all lived through just continued to sort of grow and grow until it sort of eventually rolled people over in, in our lives. And, you know, perhaps the most tragic event for me was when my cousin, um, who I was closest to, his name was Justin, uh, died of a drug overdose um, during my second year in law school. And he was a child who, and experienced every single um, adverse childhood experiences that they measure uh, on a scale of, of zero to 10. And everything from se sexual and physical abuse to the uncle that he was living at one point in time to um, neglect to, you know, having a mother who suffered from mental illness to having his father who was incarcerated. Um, and I learned later on through the research, right, that, um, you know, him dying of a drug overdose um, was the most likely outcome in his life 
given the fact that he had been exposed to so much trauma and had never received treatment or services uh, for that trauma. And so those life lessons that I learned with me in a very hard and, and tragic way stayed with me. And I saw that in all of the kids that I worked with, whether it was in you know, trying to prevent kids from being victims of, of human trafficking to kids who ended up in our justice system. And oftentimes people completely disregarded uh, this trauma that they experienced and didn't see our basic failure to protect kids from this trauma in the first place as a human rights abuse in and of itself, because we know our failure to interject in these kids' lives are gonna have uh, terrible consequences for their lifelong prospects that either you know being victims of crimes, ending up in the criminal justice system themselves, or being like my cousin and you know dying of a drug overdose or becoming addicted to drugs and having these chronic health problems later in life. And so that for me was really uh, the impetus uh, for founding Human Rights for Kids and wanting to make sure that every child has their human rights uh, protected and advocated for. So what I would like you to tell us is um, what is what are you actually doing uh, for kids with your organization? Can you possibly be very specific as to your, not just your goals, but what you're working on right now? Absolutely. So right now we are heavily focused on kids in the criminal justice system. And part of the reason for that is because they tend to be the group of the population that people have the least amount of empathy for, uh, particularly kids who commit serious crimes like murder or armed robberies. Um, they're the kids who are the most easily demonized, the kids who are the most uh, disposable. Um, and, and so we have tended to focus there as an organization because we think that uh, we can make a real difference in advocating for their children. There's a great need for it because of the way that people tend to view them. Um, and so what we're doing right now is uh, we've actually identified all of the different human rights abuses that are happening against children in the justice system and have created a model law uh, for state and federal policymakers on what they can do to create a legal framework that actually protects the human rights of kids in the justice system. The United States is the only nation in the world, the only nation in the world that has not ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, this was a convention that was adopted in 1989, 30 years after the adoption of the Declaration on the Rights of the Child that has enshrined numerous human rights protections for children, um, you know, protecting children from harm, as well as protecting children in the justice system. That there are protections such as not sentencing children to death, not sentencing children to life without parole, not placing children in solitary confinement, having a minimum age that we even deem children capable of transgressing the criminal law, that is the, the ability to even form uh, criminal intent, um, making sure that children have uh, the ability to uh, be reintegrated back into society and the focus being on rehabilitation, um, not sentencing children by the same standards that we use to sentence adults by. These are all basic human rights protections that have been embraced the world over. You can you know, spin a globe, pick a country, that country has ratified the CRC. We have not here in the United States. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we remain a global outlier in how we treat kids in our justice system. And really what we're talking about when, when we say the, we have vast human rights abuses happening against children in our justice system is that, you know, literally, quite literally, uh, the United States is engaged in the largest government sanctioned human rights abuse against children in the world today. Uh, the largest government sanctioned human rights abuse against children in the world today by our allowing children to be tried 
uh, and tried in adult court and sentenced by the same standards that we sentence adults by. Right. Um, and that's what happened to Sarah. And I think a lot of people probably listening to the prior segment were scratching their heads. How in the heck does a child sex trafficking victim who, you know, was abused, you know, from the time she was in elementary school by this sex trafficker. Um, and then one day she runs away and she returns and kills him. How does she get a life without parole sentence? How does she get the harshest possible punishment that we can impose upon children? And the sad reality is this happens to children every single day in our justice system, right? Those are kids of abuse and it's neglect. It, it doesn't matter the circumstances because once we take away their child status and we deem them an adult, uh, it doesn't matter why they were in that situation. Now, of course, we all know that it does matter. Um, and that's exactly why we're doing what we're doing. And we've created this model law that tells policymakers, this is what you must do in order to protect the human rights of kids in your justice system. Um, and we're, we, we're pushing that uh, you know, across the country. We've also created something called the National State Ratings Report, where we've rated all 50 states in DC on how well or how poorly they are doing at protecting the human rights of kids in the justice system. And, you know, I think a lot of people are oftentimes shocked by the, the findings in our report. We release it annually. Um, the three best states in the country, uh, California, Arkansas, and North Dakota, right? Um, three states that maybe don't have a whole lot in common, uh, but they're united in the fact that they actually treat children uh, better in those states than they do in, you know, uh, you know, Arkansas, for example, North Dakota, treat children much better than they do in a more liberal state like uh, Illinois, for example, or even where I'm at right now here in Maryland, um, or liberal Vermont, for example, or liberal Massachusetts. So these aren't issues that are inherently partisan. It's reflective of our board of directors and it's reflective of you know this bipartisan movement that we've been creating uh, to change the way that the system treats children. And then lastly, I'll just say, we also do litigation work. And so we file what are known as amicus briefs. Uh, these are friend of the courts briefs in high profile, high impact litigation cases across the country. We've filed three briefs in the US Supreme Court. Uh, uh, we filed briefs in state Supreme Courts and most recently in a federal uh, district court case involving um, two child sex trafficking victims. And so, um, you know, we're constantly bringing to the court's attention the need to protect and safeguard the human rights of children in the justice system and highlighting how a particular issue and a particular ruling might impact children negatively. And so it's a big part of our work is the advocacy we're doing both in the courts as well as in state legislatures and the public around the country. Now, this seems like probably a, a crazy question, but why is something like Sarah's Law needed? Aren't there safeguards in place already for kids? And um, I also wanted to ask you, how did you get to know Sarah Guzan? So if you'd answer those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to the first part of your question, uh, you know, the the issue is, is at once both sort of a complicated one, but also not so complicated, I think, when we begin to drill down and ask the tough questions about, you know, why we're treating kids in this way. Um, so the more nuanced legal answer is that oftentimes what we see in cases like Sarah or Centoya Brown or Alexis Martin or yeah, Patrice Smith or more recently Crystal Kaiser, who prosecutors are still trying to prosecute right now, uh, in the state of Wisconsin for first degree murder, 
is that, um, you know, these are kids who actually, you know, engage in premeditative acts. So they actually plan to kill their abusers, right? And, you know, often they see it as a way of, you know, escaping their situation or sometimes, you know, as an act of vengeance, you know, that this person, you know, has raped me and abused me for so long. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, exact revenge on them and do X, Y, or Z, you know? And so sometimes the motives differ a little bit, but the, the common theme is often usually the fact that, they plan out the the actual criminal act of, of committing you know murder against somebody. Now, the problem is it, most self defense laws that exist, uh, you know, they protect people who are you know feel that they're quote unquote an imminent threat of of danger, right? Of actually being uh, harmed or killed in that moment, and so. The theory that prosecutors use to prosecute these cases is that is that because these children, you know, planned out the the crime as it were, or that there's evidence that they planned it out, that therefore they're not entitled to you know this this basic uh, defense. Now, there's an inherent problem in in thinking that way for prosecutors too, right? Because we all know uh, that particularly in the human trafficking context, it's a crime that isn't just sort of a moment in time. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go rob somebody. You know, you take out a gun, you point your gun out, give me your wallet, you know, and then I run away and then the crime is over. We know that in for particularly for child sex trafficking victims, these crimes can, you know, take place over the course of many, many months to years even. And that was the case in Sarah's situation. And so part of the flaw, I think, for prosecutors in thinking so narrowly about when the self-defense doctrine should apply is that these are crimes that happen over a long period of time. But nevertheless, this is how many prosecutors approach cases like this. And so Sarah's law is needed in many ways as an extension of the self-defense doctrine to say that you know when we have these very unique cases where we have child sex crime victims who have committed acts of violence or you know or even murder against the person who was trafficking them or had been raping them and it's it, there's not a, an attenuation in time so that is to say that the crime happens within you know a six month time frame of, of when the abuse occurred that we need to unshackle the hands of judges in those cases to say like okay you know maybe this doesn't fit squarely within the doctrine of self-defense but nevertheless right uh the morality of the situation the fact that this child was a victim of the person who had abused them for so long dictates that we should not be sentencing them the same way as if they were somebody who had just planned out this murder and had no relation to the victim uh whatsoever that we need to take into account that the person who has been harmed or the person who was killed was also the person who was raping or trafficking this person over an extended period of time and so we want to give judges the ability to deviate from any mandatory minimum sentence suspend any portion of an otherwise required punishment uh, or uh, transfer that child this is our sort of preference here is to transfer that child back into the juvenile justice system so that they get the proper treatment and services that they need and deserve and aren't facing the prospect of a lengthy mandatory minimum sentence or a potential life sentence um, it's also important to note that in some of these cases you know we're not always talking about a first degree murder case you know some some of the the, the kids in these cases did commit a homicidal act against the, their, their, the person who was victimizing them. But others like Alexis Martin, for example, were a felony murder case where, you know, she was actually being raped in the next room when a group of boys uh, broke in and, and robbed her trafficker upstairs and then ended up shooting and killing him unbeknownst to her. So she was she was convicted under what we know as the felony murder rule. And that is where you don't have to know or intend for anybody to kill, but the fact that somebody is killed during the, 
the commission of a felony offense makes you just as liable for first degree murder. And so in Alexis's case, she didn't kill anybody. She didn't intend for anybody to be killed. She thought, you know, she was just setting her trafficker up to be robbed by this group of boys. And, you know, in the end, they end up, you know, they end up getting her for first degree murder and sentencing her to life imprisonment. Um, so, you know, there's all different dynamics in each of these particular cases. But Sarah's law is very clear in what we're trying to accomplish, which is that, you know, we want children to no longer be sentenced as if they were, you know, these these cold hearted killers, but rather uh, we want them to be recognized for the victims that they are. Uh, eventually, we want this to be extended to to be a complete defense against these offenses so that these kids instead are completely treated within the confines of the child welfare system. Um, and there are examples of this that people have done this, prosecutors have done this, judges have done this in other cases, oftentimes with these particular cases. Um, you know, they don't get the same, they don't get the same treatment, um, in part because they're girls and in part because they're girls of color as well. And so we have to be mindful of that dynamic in our justice system and, and the way that these kids in particular are treated because they come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds because they're girls. And, um, you know, when crimes are committed by girls against men, um, you know, there's this, there's this gendered stereotype that exists. And oftentimes the system comes down with a very heavy hammer against them. And then my relationship to Sarah, I'm sorry, that's, that's the second part of your, your question. Um, Sarah and I met while I was at uh, Polaris Project, actually, when I came out of law school, I worked at an anti-trafficking organization here in DC called Polaris Project. Uh, they run the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline for the US Department of Health and Human Services. Um, at that time, Sarah was still serving a life sentence without parole um, in California. And she had become, at that point, the face of a movement to end life without parole sentences for children. And we were asked by a number of groups in California to get involved in her case. And, um, you know, it was an issue that at that time, just to be completely transparent, I, I kind of divided the organization a little bit because we work so closely with law enforcement, people didn't quite know how that might impact our relationship with them. And I felt very strongly from the, kind of from the get-go that we should be involved and, and um, you know, I asked my ED, Brad Miles at the time, if, you know, I could get her case file from her attorneys and, and begin to um, uh, look a little bit more deeply into the case. And it was during that time that I felt, uh, you know, I covered everything that had happened to Sarah um, and, you know, was able to present a very, very compelling case to my ED at the time. Um, and he felt strongly too that we should get involved. So we wrote a letter to Governor Schwarzenegger um, asking on, the, on behalf of the organization for him to commute her sentence along with a number of other organizations. And um, that's really you know, where my relationship with Sarah started. And then when she was released in 2013, her and I began working together at my next organization to end the life without parole sentences for children across the country. And so ever since then, her and I have been sort of working together and um, you know, on, on these various issues from in the anti-trafficking space, ending life without parole sentences for kids to uh, now Sarah's Law. And so it's been, it's been a real pleasure for me to be able to continue my work with her and um, see how much she's grown and just all the incredible advocacy she's, she's been able to do on people with, for people who are similarly situated as her. All right, well, we are just about out of time, but I know you said you would return to speak more about these very, very important issues. And I thank you so much for joining us today and encourage my listeners to come back and hear our next interview when you come back next time. So thank you, James, and we'll uh, see you next time. And thanks for listening. Thank you, Harriet.